Alrighty, so I want to start this morning with a children's sermon, because we haven't, don't have enough of those in our lives, so kiddos, come on up. And then if I could have maybe a volunteer from the studio audience. Bryant, you want to try this again? Come on, man. Give Brian a big round of applause. <laughs> Brian and I go way back. So we're going to be talking about trust this morning. Talked about it a little bit at, uh, at Jam. You guys have a good time at Jam, by the way, this morning? Yeah? It was a good one? Yeah? All right. Good? Good? All right. So we talked about trust. How God is always with us so we can trust him for who he is and what he says he's going to do for us. Now... Brian had a little trouble test, or trusting me this morning. Has something to do with a rat trap, but that's a whole other story, all right? So today, though, something a lot less, um, I don't know, threatening, a lot less um, evasive. I have this pitcher of water, and I'm going to put this jar upside down over your head. Oh, but first, I'm going to put a piece of paper on it, all right? So um, do you think you trust me on this one, Brian? Okay, oh, you do? He said yes. So I watch this now. Turn this upside down. And when I move my hand, that paper should stay on that jar. All right, so maybe if you've been here long enough, you've seen me do this before. And I discovered anybody can do this. Here, can I hold this over your head? Oh, wait, here. Why don't we put this little napkin on you just in case anything spills on there? Okay, that'll, that'll take care of a whole pint of water, right? All right, so anybody can do this part. But if you hold your hand really steady... And you take that paper off, a few drops come off, but I know. Please hold your applause because the the vibrations might make this water fall on Brian's head. You good, dude? Are you you have your eyes shut? Open your eyes, coward. Come on, man. Right? So you trust me to do this. You're sitting here, you're not bolting. You're not uh, looking for the little rain jacket thing that we did. And just for you naysayers, by the way. So, Right, thank you. That's very cool. All right, so we're good? I'll turn you, I'll turn you unharmed completely. All right, so now, Brian, I have a question for you. Why did you trust me to do that? I, I know, I, I realize I shamed you into that. But why did you trust me to do that? Okay, you saw it. You trust me more with water than a rat trap. Okay, but so, um, have you seen me do things like this before? Yes. You've seen me do things like this before, and are they generally successful? Be careful with your answer. Generally successful. Oh, yeah, so you've seen me do these things before, and up till this point, there's that one incident we had. You know, the Statue of Limitations is almost up on that. We can talk about it. But other than that one incident, no, I'm just kidding. There was no incident. Yeah, you know, everybody comes out clean, right? Okay, so that's exactly why we can trust God. Because God has come through for us and come through for a lot of people. And this Bible that we're going to talk about here in a minute is chock full of stories where God has come through for people. Where God says, I'm going to be with you always. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm always going to be with you. And so that we can trust him. So we're going to learn about this Bible a little bit more. How we can put our trust in God a little bit more. And why we can put our trust in. Know that these words are true. That they are the words that he wrote to us originally. All right. So, now, without further ado, this one's open. I guess that one's for me later. Here you go. Grab one of those really quick here. Brian, you get in here and make sure you get one too. There's a shot clock, sir. (laughs) 
Nice, nice. See, there we go. We make a decision and we go with it. All right. Well done, well done. All right, see, they can identify these. Okay, thanks a lot, you guys. We'll go back to your parents. You're very welcome. Thank you, Brian. Another round of applause for Brian Magnan for being nice and brave. I'm not sure I would have stuck my hand in a rat trap either, so I can't blame him too bad. And now, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So now, like I said in, uh, in the announcements, we are fast approaching Reformation Sunday. Um, that's coming up um, next week. Don't miss that. We've got a big day planned. We've got a lot going on. And we have maybe egg bakes coming along. And don't forget the bear claws, you know, and things like that, and the cinnamon cake, things like that. But uh, so I thought it was a, would be a good idea to examine some of Luther's teachings as we get our way into uh, Reformation Sunday. Uh, why do we follow him? Why was he such a famous person? Why do people know about him? Why do we call ourselves um, Lutherans that follow his ways of teaching and his ideas? Um, and so uh, remember the concepts that Luther took uh, and nailed, he said, the 95 Theses to the castle door at, at Wittenberg, um, at Wittenberg Castle. Um, he wrote those down to straighten people out. Um, he made those arguments, um, those concepts to help people understand some things. Um, how God works in our lives, and most importantly, how God saves those who put their trust in Him um, and believe that Jesus is the, God, is the Son of God and, and saves us, the ones that brings us to salvation. So as we started to unpack some of that last week, um, some of the historical events, we started talking about one of uh, Luther's ideas. He said that we are saved by word alone. What he means by that is God's words alone, not people's words, but God's words so he said, you know, we, we started to unpack some of those uh, things with the historical backgrounds, and then um, that got a lot of people talking, got some follow-up questions, um, both to me and some other people. So um, it became clear, kind of, we should, pro- we should probably talk about that a little bit more. Um, so um, talk about the subject of the Bible, how um, we got this one in our hands. How did we get these words in our hands uh, right now? And I think we should take a minute to discover a little bit further how we got these words and whether or not, here is the deal, you know, we don't say the, the quiet parts out loud enough, but how do we know that we can trust this? You know, I mean, just because somebody says we can, or how, where is the historical, you know, uh, background for it? How do we know that we can really trust it? Because that's at, the Bible is at the root of everything we do. Um, everything we have, it's the way that God communicates with us. The Bible tells us who God is, talks about his promises, talks about how we fit into his kingdom. So it's, it's something that not only we need to read, but we have to know that we can trust it. We have to understand that, that it's here for us. Everything we hold dear is based on, this word, or on, this, on these words. So again, I felt it necessary to take, I call them precious Sundays, man. We only got so many Sundays to share with each other, and we're going to take one more here. We're going to talk about God's words um, to us, and we're going to take another peek at um, how we know that we can trust it. Okay, so um, how do we know that this is the Bible that God gave us? Okay, that's, the, my, that's my thesis statement for in the morning. That's the word on the word, right? Now, for simplicity's sake, um, I, I have a limited amount of time here, so I'm going to stick with the New Testament for this discussion. Uh, but understand that this discussion could easily cover the Old Testament, Old Testament, and it could all easily cover the whole Bible. We could make this into a three-part series. But this morning, I want to stick with the New Testament. 
And then, like I said last week, I want to boil it down even further. Again, just for simplicity's sake, not because I'm afraid to go in any other direction, but just for simplicity's sake, New Testament, I want to talk about the Gospels. And this morning, I'm going to focus uh, specifically on the Gospel of John. That's why we read from John um, earlier this morning. Okay, so now, again, we could spend equal amount of time, uh, throw a dart, and we could defend any other book in the Bible the same way I'm going to do it here um, this morning. Okay, so now, first of all, uh, let's define some terms. The word Bible... Um, it's both a Latin term and a Greek term. It means a couple of different things. It means book, it means library, and in, in our case here, it means a set or a collection of books. So when you hold a Bible in your hand, you're holding a mini library in your hand. We have 39 books in the Old Testament. We have 27 books in the New Testament. So here we have this mini library. It's a collection of writings, mini library, of collection of uh, 40 at least different authors, um, Diversity. Um, some of them were fishermen, some of them were kings, some of them were farmers, some of them were doctors, some of them were shepherds. Um, in the Bible that we have in our hand was written over 1,500 years, a time span of 1,500 years. And yet with all that diversity, all that diversity within the, the writers and the time frame, it comes this incredible unity that comes with it, a common theme woven throughout the Bible. And as I said last week, this is where Luther took his stand. This is where Luther said, this is what we have to understand. This is what we have to do. He committed everything to him to this. He dedicated, devoted everything to pulling um, both the church and God's people, the church and God's people, back to the main ideas that the Bible teaches us. Again, that God is the central theme of the Bible, right? And that Jesus is the central purpose of the Bible. We've got to keep those two things in mind the whole time. And again, this is where God is leading the writers of the Bible, the people that, that wrote the Bible, um, so when we read the Bible, we have to understand that we are reading God's words, not people's words. Like we saw, a lot, saw last week in 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1.20 says, understand this. This is the New Living Translation, by the way. No part of the holy writings was ever made up by any man. Now, if you look at this in your version at home, unless you have the NLV, it's going to say something about prophecy, that no prophecy. But NLV um, brings it to where we need to understand it, we need to hear it, and we need to, re, uh, to really um, sink our teeth into it. No part of the holy writings, no part of the Bible was ever made up by man. Verse 21 keeps going. No part of the holy writings came along, came along ago because of what man wanted to write. In other words, it wasn't what we wanted to write, it was what God wanted us to write. But holy men who belonged to God uh, spoke what the Holy Spirit told them, right? So the Holy Spirit, speaking through people, wrote God's words down for us. Okay, so again, just to keep the main point, the main point here, what, what Luther was reading, things like this from Second Peter and different places like that, uh, and then Luther was taking those to teach, to instruct and, and preach and, and correct the things that were going, around, uh, going along and around at that time. Now, what we're doing here is uh, we're basically defending the, the validity of the Bible. Now, um, and I realize that if you use Second Peter as a reference, that's going to seem like circular reasoning. Um, I'm going to get back to that in a moment. So we're not going to take the words that the Bible tells us that it is, although we can do that and we can understand that. Just like Second Peter, we could cross-reference that, have ten different scriptures that would say basically the same thing, that the Bible is telling us that we can trust it. But now there's still that idea of how do we know that we can trust it? How do we know that we have the words that God told these people to write? How do we know that we have the words that God told these people to write? So if we take it as a given that these are the words that God told people to write, if we take that as our launching point, there's still a lot of um, kind of backtracking that we need to do to, to solidify um, maybe our faith, maybe our trust, maybe our, just our knowledge of it. 
So the question um, at hand here is if we, if we believe the original writers were writing God's words, then how can we be so sure that, that they're still here, that these are still those original words? Okay, so sort of like we did last week, um, and if you haven't listened to that, it's on YouTube, you can uh, look it up, Grace O'Connell Falls, and look it up real quick. So like we did last week, we'll work backwards for a bit, and then we'll work forwards to get to where we need to be. Um, so again, I'm going to just say this as a disclaimer. Whenever, uh, whatever English translation you have in your hand, if it's, um, if it's a credible uh, one anyway, mainstream translation, if it's a, t- a mainstream translation, it can be traced back to the original Greek and Hebrew that we have, that we can reference, we can take a look at and say, that's not what this says. Why does, your, why does that uh, translation of the Bible say that? So, but the mainstream ones, um, we've scrutinized them and we've said, yes, uh, we, can, we can publish these. We can, if they're not, um, we throw flags about them and, and you know, we do um, some things about that. But um, that, that doesn't mean that every translation, English translation, is the same. In fact, they're not. Um, if you've ever done a Bible study with me, I like having different uh, English translations because we have different words then uh, from like a Greek or a Hebrew translation. We have different English language, different words because um, different words have different flavors, different nuances, um, you know, into the new language to give us a better idea of maybe where the original word is going. But most importantly, there'll be times um, that things just don't translate. We have to remember that. There's times where things just don't translate. Um, You probably don't believe me with that, but um, when I lived in Japan, I found it very difficult to explain uh, and translate some things that we do here in America, because we do some pretty crazy things down here. So I'd like you, in in a thousand words or less, to describe to a Japanese person exactly what you're seeing here. (laughs) Ah, It's going to take a minute to unpack that whole thing here, you know, and there's a lot going on in that picture. So how how do we translate something like that? Okay, so maybe starting off with a little bit of review here um, to expand, uh, like I said, a little bit from last week. By the year 200 A.D., 200 A.D., so just, you know, not long after Jesus lived, right? Um, The Latin language started to form and started to take prominence in a couple of areas um, in the world, mostly North Africa. Um, Europe and Asia were still prominently, um, predominantly Greek-speaking, but Latin was creeping in as kind of the language of scholars. So the church started to understand that maybe we need to start having a Latin translation. So in 200 um, A.D., uh, the first that we have, the first Latin translation started to come out in many regions. Now, there was a problem with that uh, because um, there was a lot of differences in these translations. There was a lot of discrepancies when you went back to the original Greek and the original Hebrew. So there's so many different versions, um, not like your English translations that, again, are solid because we've gone back and we've we scrutinized these and we know what we're doing now and we've got our act together. But so people took a lot of liberties and they were writing some crazy stuff in, like in between 200 and 400. So then around 400 A.D., um, there was a pope, and his name was uh, Damasus, and I got a picture of him right here. This is a statue of Pope Damasus I. He wanted a standardized version. So he um, commissioned um, St. Jerome. He, maybe you've heard that name in church history. He commissioned Jerome to put together um, a culmination of these Latin translations into one translation right about 400 A.D. Now, 
as Luther pointed out, that's the one he, that Luther was talking about, the Vulgate that Luther was talking about, saying there's still a lot of, he called it um, artistic license. Now, he didn't use those words, but that's our kind of translation of how he was saying it. Um, he was saying there's some things going wrong in it, but maybe they didn't do it um, maliciously. Maybe it wasn't uh, an intentional kind of thing. In fact, they tried to pin Luther down a couple times and say, you know, was that intentional or was it a transitional or a translational error? And he never really threw anybody under the bus, so to speak. He, he took the high road on it and said, the important thing is, is we need to fix that. Um, bring in now, uh, my man, um, um, Erasmus. Sorry, I forgot who I'm talking about here. Erasmus, in 1516, I think we have a picture of him too, do we not? A picture of Erasmus? Maybe not. Okay, so Erasmus, in 1516, um, tied together... Um, the Latin version of the Bible. What he did is he made his own translation from the Greek. So he made a parallel Bible with Greek on one side from you know, the Septuagint, uh, Greek on one side, and Latin on the other side. So you could scrutinize for yourself whether or not this was um, you know, solid and whether or not this was a, a good translation or not. So, okay, so that's in Luther's time. They finally were getting it um, straight and narrow. But I want to get back to um, our, our translations overall. But I want you to think about what you just heard here. Um, I know I said a lot there, but I want to I bring back, circle back a little bit and have some things that we can sink our teeth into and, and realize what we're talking about here. Um, people will try to discount the Bible because of what we call the Vulgate from like 200 A.D., um, that, it, that it's flawed. Try to fix it in 400 A.D., that didn't go so hot either. Um, they both used um, what are still considered to be the original documents. Now, in 200 A.D., listen to me now, in 200 A.D., nobody questioned the original Greek and Hebrew Septuagint documents. They were all talking about the errors in the Latin translation. They said, no, you didn't translate this solidly because we know that this is solid, so this has to match this. You hear what I'm saying? Nobody questioned the original documents in 200 A.D., right? So now... Hold that thought for a second, because we, we could go down the road and talk about um, credibility of the Bible. We could talk about, uh, from a literary standpoint, how we go back to antiquity, we would call it, and how we rate whether or not a document is as worthy of reading or as, if it's trustworthy. Uh, we do a couple things. We see how many copies we have. The more copies you have, the better it is because you can compare and contrast different copies. And the more they say the same thing, the higher the credibility is there. Um, the, we also look at how close is this copy to the original document. The closer, obviously, to the original document, and the more copies you have, then the more um, credibility you have. The Bible has antiquity documents blown away. The, the, the number of copies we have and how close they are to the original. Take all the other antiquity um, documents combined, you don't even come to a drop in the bucket of what we've got for the Bible. But um, that's one way to, to talk about it. We could also point out, um, uh, again, talk about the gospel writers um, being eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. I'm going to talk about that in a second. We're going to talk about how the gospel um, books that we have were written 20 or 30 years uh, from the time Jesus died, with the exception of John, possibly. But that, that might sound, 20 or 30 years might sound like a long time. But I want you to think about this, especially the adults in the room. I want you to think about it like this. If I asked you to write an historical account of what happened on 9-11, you could probably write down an awful lot of things that happened that day, where you were, um, where you saw the, um, the planes and uh, some of the aftermath. Um, I was on Langley Air Force Base in Virginia, so my perspective might be a little different than yours. 
Um, you didn't see a lot of planes flying because planes didn't fly for I don't even remember how long. But, man, we had jets flying, taking off like every five minutes off of language. So, you know, we'd have a whole lot of different perspective. But uh, just because we have different perspectives now, and this is my point last week, just because we have different perspectives doesn't mean they're false, right? So if we wrote them down, uh, we, we would, uh, you know, get a good historical account of what would happen. But now... Um, Paul said, you know, what he was writing in some of the documents, some of the things that he was talking about, his credibility was, some of you are still alive that witnessed the same things that I'm talking about, right? So if I wrote uh, an, a historical document, I called it a historical document about 9-11, and I said, I said helicopters flew into the buildings, or, or hang gliders flew into the buildings, right? Everybody that was alive at the time would say, that's not how it happened. I watched it on TV. That's not how it happened at all, right? You throw a flag on it, and you'd call it out for what it is. That's what Paul said. If, he said, if I'm writing false things, throw a flag on it. Call it, off, call it out for what it is, right? So now those are the things we want to talk about. Now, again, I want to get back to that 200 A.D. point that I made a second ago. In 200 A.D., there was no debate about those original documents, Nobody doubted them. Nobody um, thought that they were a bad translation. Nobody thought that they were false at all. So now the question we have to ask today, and the one that I want to really um, kind of met out here in the time that I've got left, is how, how did they know that? How did, why did they trust those documents so much in 280? Why did they trust those original documents so much? And how did they know that the Latin documents, the Latin, Latin translations, had, had taken um, you know, a left turn on, in a couple of places? The answer to that... Why did they trust those documents? The answer to that is rather simple, but it's, it kind of gets lost in the shuffle sometimes, gets lost to history a little bit. So I want to back up and talk about that. But before we do that, I still want to make sure that, that we understand the, the main point, that we keep the main thing the main thing. That the Bible that we're talking about, and the reason I'm talking about this is because of Jesus, uh, who he is in our lives and what he talks about. Jesus is the main point, he's the main purpose, he's the main theme of the Bible. And he, like Jesus said to the Pharisees, if you miss that, you miss salvation. Okay, so why are we talking about this? We're talking about being able to put our trust in these documents. We're talking about being able to put our trust in these words, that these are God's words to us, the way he spoke them to the original writers. Okay, so now if we talk about Jesus, of course, he had 12 disciples, right? Walking around with him for three years. Um, and from those disciples, we get four Gospels, right? Like I said, I want to kind of keep things a little bit narrower here. Uh, we get those Gospels either written by um, a disciple's representative. Um, you know, Mark's writing for Peter. Um, Luke is writing for Paul. Matthew and John, though, they were Jesus' disciples writing literally eyewitness accounts. Um, and you'll remember, uh, as I've told you before, that it was commonplace for rabbis, for teachers, to have disciples. Right? Uh, Jesus mentioned um, John the Baptist. Um, John the Baptist had disciples. Right? And when he saw Jesus, he told his disciples, stop following me and go follow that guy. Right? Okay, so, now, people had disciples. Teachers had disciples. Well, what we don't maybe realize and understand, because it's after the Bible happened, so maybe we don't go far enough um, into that kind of history, is the disciples had disciples. And when you think about it, that should make sense. Because um, these guys, and everybody knew it, these guys lived with Jesus, walked around with Jesus, heard stuff firsthand from him, so people were very interested in learning from them. So the disciples had disciples. And this is where it gets interesting, historically speaking and biblically speaking. Um, okay, so all of this has been interesting so far. But this is where the rubber meets the road. Um, the reality that the, that Bible in our hands. Okay, so now take again um, John. 
the Apostle John, the disciple John, the disciple that Jesus loved. Um, after Jesus, um, John had disciples. Again, people knew who John was. They knew that he was with Jesus, and they wanted to learn from him. So um, the disciples um, we need to talk about today, John's disciples we need to talk about today, um, are significant in biblical history and significant for this conversation, significant for the credibility of the words that we hold in our hands in the Bible. Okay, so the first guy we have to talk about, they've got some cool names here, is Ignatius. Ignatius, I think I have a picture of Ignatius here. This is, um, Ignatius is a common name in church history. This is Ignatius of Antioch, okay? Um, and this, again, is where it gets really cool. We don't have John's original writings. We don't have John's Gospels. We don't have John's um, epistles. The three Johns at the end, those are letters. Um, so we don't have those original documents. Here's Ignatius, though. Um, Ignatius died in 108 A.D., the cool thing about Ignatius is we have his original writings. We have his original letters that are existing, that you could walk up. You can't hold them because they're museum pieces, but you can walk up and you can see the actual, his actual handwriting on pieces of paper. This is John's disciple. Okay, so what's so cool about it? We've got, uh, help me out here, is it seven or nine of them we have that are they're verified? And there's, there's another mm, less than a dozen, less than 20 total that, of his writings that we have in our hands. Here's the cool part about it. Um, he quotes scripture in chunks of it. He quotes John a lot. He quotes Paul a lot. He quotes James a lot. So we have these documents in our hands of this guy who lived basically in their times, knew John, knew some of the other guys, and was writing some of their stuff down about it. We have his existing letters. I'm maybe not as excited about it as I am, but we have his existing letters Again, quoting huge chunks of the New Testament. So we can take those letters that he's written that we can sit and we can look at, we can read, and we can compare it to uh, sections of the Bible that we have. We can compare it to sections of the Bible that we say these are the original documents that we can go back to for credibility's sake and take a look at them. And Ignatius is backing us up here because, like I said, he was living it, he was doing it, he was back there in the day with John. Again, quotes huge sections of most of the books in the New Testament because people will tell you again, that the New Testament was put together in, you know, the Council of Nicaea or the, you know, the Constantine later put it, which is kind of true, but because of Ignatius, we know that all of these letters existed around 100 A.D. We know that they were all there. How do we know that? Because he's quoting them. Because we're reading his letters, we're reading about what he's talking about. He wrote those letters, he wrote those to churches, just like Paul was writing to churches. Just like Paul was correcting churches when they were going down the wrong path or going down the wrong pipe and things. And then he would quote Paul. He'd say, hey, remember what Paul said about this? Hey, remember what John said about this? Huge section of Mark. Remember what Mark said about this? These are the things that we've got to line up with. And he's writing those letters. And again, like I'm telling you, we can read those letters, we can look at them, and we can, we can understand um, that we're pretty close on all of this. Not pretty close, we're exactly right on on all of the stuff that he's talking about. Okay, so John had another um, a disciple. Um, these church names are pretty cool. Uh, this guy's name is Polycarp. And I, to be honest, I was going to put all these pictures up of these guys, but they pretty much look like that first guy, pretty much look like Ignatius, so just kind of keep his picture in mind while we talk about these other guys. Polycarp was also uh, a disciple of John, but late on in John's life. 
now Polycarp became a disciple of Ignatius. Okay, so, um, and then uh, Polycarp was martyred in 155 A.D. So, dude, man, we are still right at ground zero for all this stuff happening. We are right at the beginning of all this stuff happening. Polycarp believed all this stuff. He was teaching this stuff. The church and Rome absolutely hated him because he was teaching the truths about Jesus. He was quoting the Bible. He was talking about furthering on, putting a Bible together. It was one of his ideas to put the Bible together so we could pass the whole thing around, not just these fragments, not just a book or a letter here or there. He said, no, no, we've got to put this whole thing together so we can do this. Rome hated him for it. The church hated him for it. So they, they were going to martyr him, right? They were going to burn him at the stake. So now you've got to imagine this. We're in the Roman Colosseum, right? So here's Polycarp um, tied to a stake, and they've got a lot of his writings around, and they said, oh, you want those Bibles? So here, why don't we put some of those Bibles? That's what we're going to use for the firewood. That's what we're going to use to burn you. And they said, you know what, but we're going to have mercy on you if you'll do one thing. We're going to kill you quickly, otherwise you're going to burn at the stake, which is a pretty horrible way to die. They said, we'll make it quick on you. Now, he's got all these Christians sitting behind him. So the emperor said, what you have to do is you have to turn around and you've got to say, away with these atheists. Because as crazy as it sounds, they called Christians atheists because they wouldn't worship the, the Roman gods, mostly for the emperor. They wouldn't worship the emperor, so they called them atheists, you know, without gods, right? And so he, he said, you've got to turn around and say, away with the atheists. Well, here's Polycarp standing here facing this whole Colosseum full of people because this is a big thing. Polycarp is finally going to be martyred, and they're going to get rid of this guy. So Polycarp says that, but instead of turning around and saying, away with the atheists, he motioned all of them. He said, away with the atheists of all the Romans and everything. Ooh, that made him kind of mad. So, all right, so Polycarp, you know, got, got martyred that day. But standing up for what he believed in, you know, that's another part of the credibility statement that we have. These guys are standing up for what they believe in. Why? Because they know it's the absolute truth. Polycarp heard it from John. I mean, that's not even a, is that even a step or is that a half a step? From John to Polycarp. Here we are, right? 155 A.D. is when, he's, um, when, he's get, when he gets murdered. But before he did, Polycarp had disciples. One of his disciples, the most famous one, um, is, uh, his name is Arrhenius. Now, I'm not trying to gloss over these church, founding church fathers. I'm not going to mention a whole lot about Arrhenius here, but um, he's got a whole story, obviously, to tell, too, but I'm, I'm limited on my time here. So, um, again, got a very short line back to Jesus. I only put him in there because you can understand where the line is here. Now, um, he had maybe the best um, disciple's name um, in the Bible. His, name, his disciple's name is Hippolytus. Want to say it? Hippolytus. Are you guys with me or not? Hippolytus? All right, so Hippolytus, there you go. Arrhenius died right around 200 A.D. Remember, that's kind of the mark that I put, uh, the line I drew in the sand was 200 A.D. Arrhenius died in about 200 um, A.D. Hippolytus died, and and we have this recorded because of Roman history, Uh, Hippolytus died in 236 A.D. Now, again, these guys are all killed because of their faith and their teachings in Jesus, and going back to the Bible, going back to the original documents that we had, going right back to John. John's not even a step from Jesus. John was living with Jesus. Ignatius, Polycarp were living with John, right? Ignatius, there's a good chance that Ignatius actually heard Jesus talking. Arrhenius, Hippolytus, right? They're all right there. They're all in a straight line. This brings us to 236 A.D., This brings us from Jesus to 236 A.D. Why did the people in 200 A.D. know that the documents were true? Because these guys were keeping track of it. These guys were right there with it the whole time. 
already we have a stack this high of documents that we still look at today. Already we had a stack of documents this high. So many documents that we could take a, literally a third of them and we could put the Bible together without having the whole Bible because of like Ignatius quotes parts of the New Testament. We can take those and when we stack up all these different writers, we can actually create a New Testament without having a New Testament in our hands. All right, I'm starting to sweat. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? Where are we with this? We have this direct line. We put their names back up again. We have that direct line from Jesus through John, through Ignatius, right? Polycarp, Arrhenius, Hippolytus, right? Now, like I said at the beginning, we can't use the Bible to defend the Bible because that's called circular reasoning. Saying the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true doesn't hold water. Maybe it would with us. But it wouldn't hold water, you know, in an argument. That's not why we're doing this, is you can win an argument or anything like that. But, but sometimes we need more. You know, sometimes we need that little ounce of proof or that little ounce of reassurance that what we have in our hands is the actual words from God, right? Through the people that wrote them straight down to us. Because, you know, we start thinking about antiquity. You think, you know, it's easy for things to get lost in the shuffle. Well, not this. This was very closely guarded from one person to the next, to the next, to the next, so much so that the people in 200 A.D., and I picked that line because after that, there's not a whole lot of question, even historically, there's not a whole lot of question. Up to it, I present to you, there is no question about whether or not it's authentic, whether or not it's there for us. But what we need to do, what we can do, is let the Bible define its purpose statement. Let the Bible define its, its mission statement. And since we've been looking at the life and legacy of John, that you see right there, the legacy of John this morning, I want to let John's words, which we know we can trust, John's words, which we know we can trust, let John's words tell us why it's so important for us to know that we can trust these words to be true. We know those words are true. We know that we can put our trust in them. John has two purpose statements of the Bible that I want to share with us this morning. I'm going to leave us with this. 1 John 5.13 says this. He says, I've written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. What's the purpose of the Bible? So that you may know that you have eternal life. Can we know that we have eternal life? According to John, yes. That's what the Bible is for. Why do we have to be able to trust this? Why do we have to be able to, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, understand it? Because eternal life is at stake. John also, in chapter 20, this is the Gospel of John. Um, this is 31. 31 uh, verse 30 says something like, Jesus performed many other miracles that we haven't written down. You know, because he said the whole world isn't big enough to hold these books. But then he says this, but these were written down. The ones, the miracles that Jesus did, we wrote these down so that you may continue, right? Continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. It's important to know the word, like I called the, sermon, or the message title, the word on the word. What's the word on the word? What do we know about it? It's important to know that 
Because everything rides on that. Our literal eternal life hangs in the balance with these words that, are, that God has given to us. And I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that there's no shadow of a doubt that these are the actual words that these writers were given to by the Holy Spirit that we hold in our hands here today. There's a lot of people that are going to tell you a whole lot of difference, but, you know, where's their credibility statement? Do they have a list of names? Do they have people in history that are guarding this with everything that they have? Do they have original documents that we can go back to and we can say, you know, that lines up exactly what this says right here? That's what we have in our hands. That's the credibility of the Bible. It's who God says he is. The Bible shows us God's promises, and we can trust them beyond a shadow of a doubt. And it's important to do that because, like I said, eternal life hangs in the balance. Amen? What are your questions? Just kidding. Let's stand.